So I kept reading and listening and then went forward in the podcast. Then I went to your website and I looked at the size you have for the different properties and the numbers. So I started learning about the numbers and what they meant. And being the skeptic I am and being a techie, I actually wrote a program to go and scrape your website and other people's websites and redo the calculations just so I could prove it out myself. And eventually I came to the conclusion that real estate is a great deal. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to Creating Wealth with Jason Hartman. During this program, Jason is going to tell you some really exciting things that you probably haven't thought of before and a new slant on investing. Fresh new approaches to America's best investment that will enable you to create more wealth and happiness than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made, multimillionaire who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He's been a successful investor for 20 years and currently owns properties in 11 states and 17 cities. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to financial freedom. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman. This is episode number 506, 506. Thank you so much for joining me today as I am talking to you from a rooftop of a uh, hotel here in Beverly Hills, California, one of the most overpriced real estate markets in the world. As you know, our client and now investment counselor, client turned investment counselor, Fernando, who you've heard on the show before, he's here with me and we've been at a mastermind meeting the last couple of days. I came out to see him for breakfast and uh, he started asking me questions and we thought, you know, these would be really good for the podcast because a lot of investors have the same questions. So uh, Fernando, uh, fire away with, um, I guess, well, first of all, before we fire away with questions, impressions from the last two days here at our mastermind meeting. Uh, it's been awesome. I mean, the learning that I've, I've, I've done in the last couple of days, the level of the people that are part of the mastermind just blew my mind. You, you instantly get to a level where uh, your interests are aligned with the people that are present in a mastermind. It does cost quite a bit to be part of it. Um, but with the connections, that instant recognition, the level playing field, you make strong connections with future business partners and get ideas right away. It's, it's, been, it's been great. You know, obviously the learning uh, from a, a marketing perspective that I've gotten uh, was, uh, was very, very worth the, uh, the first meeting that uh, we, we went to. So it's been great. This one is uh, one of the three mastermind groups of which I'm a member, and Fernando joined this one with me uh, so uh, that we could get some great ideas on marketing and business and entrepreneurship and so forth, because uh, uh, as you know, Fernando's story, I'll just refresh your memory, uh, he was a client, I met him three years ago, he purchased 70 units, retired about a year ago from Apple Computer, and uh, he's just got a great story, and so what we decided to do as he was encountering some of the frustrations of, you know, managing properties and managing a portfolio. Of course, we still think real estate is the best thing going, but you know, it's not without its uh, 
perils and problems here and there. And so we decided to start a little software company together that um, provides some good tools for investors to help them uh, find properties, evaluate properties, self-manage properties, and really empower them in that all-important task of the property management where um, you know investors can uh, buy a la carte property management services. So more to come on that. We just signed a software development agreement, and you know we're several months away from um, having a, a beta test. Again, really to help you manage your properties, manage your managers, and manage the properties. So more to come on that. You know what impresses me about these mastermind groups is that. The price is part of the qualifier. And for this one, we paid 25,000 bucks. And uh, it's like you walk in the room and whether it be John Asroff, just, you know, a whole bunch of other names, you look at all the name badges there <laughs> as you go in. And uh, this one's limited in size to 100 people, but it's really an elite group. I mean... Just the price qualifier, you know everybody you're talking to is the real deal, right? right. And, they, and they look at you already being a peer. They don't look at you as going there just to, you know, to have free food. You know, it's a completely different level. Um, and within a few minutes, you can, you can uh, strike a conversation and you find out what somebody's interested in, what your common interest, interests are. And this mastermind is about marketing, internet marketing. And obviously, that applies to all fields in, in business. So we've talked to quite a few people yesterday and had some great ideas to implement in our company. And also, we bounced ideas off of these people that have you know, excellent credentials and can really provide qualified feedback. And the feedback that they provided on uh, our IMLS company is, is, is strong, which is awesome. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. So uh, more to come on that. And um, at breakfast this morning, you have a few of your leases renewing uh, of your 70 units, and you had some questions for me. And, uh, you know, as soon as I sat down, you, you told me, have your coffee, and then I have questions for you. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Yeah. yeah, now that I went to a marketing uh, conference mastermind, I, uh, we're going to start a new segment in the program called, What Would Jason Do? Would <laughs> so. You may not want to do what I would do, but uh, anyway, you know, take it for what it's worth. What's Jason's opinion on this? And uh, we'll see what we'll be doing. Um, So, yeah, so the question is, I have a renewal on a property in uh, Naples, Florida, and this one is self-managed. We have a tenant that has a two-year lease, so the two-year lease is expiring in May. The current lease price, uh, rent price, monthly price is uh, $1,075, okay? Now, when we look at the market rent two years ago, it was about 1200 And the reason that, you know, we, we're only charging 1075 is because we negotiated a discount with them. They are landscapers, and they agreed to install irrigation systems and throughout the property in, in exchange for a lower, lower rent. They are good tenants. They pay on time. They don't request much. And if they, they even fix some issues with, with the house themselves. They're good tenants, good people. So... I wanted to know what you would do. I, I need to know the market rent currently to have a basis on what, what the starting point is for the renewal. But um, the, the market rent uh, that I see from places like Rentometer uh, doesn't tell me much. The range that Rentometer provides is very wide. So we need to get a better feel for what the market is. And then what would you do 
with this renewal. You know, it's likely to have a big delta in price from what the market rent is to the 1075 they're paying now. Okay, so the first thing is, I would not recommend entering into deals, unless you just have to do it, where the tenant agrees to improve something for a rent discount, because it's hard to quantify that, and, you know, you never know if, you had good luck with this tenant, and they're good people, but, you know, you could have someone who does shoddy work, and you just don't know. You know, it's more to fix what they did than what, you know, what they promised to do, yeah. Yeah, I try to stay away from deals like that, because that's just complex, okay? So that's the first thing. But, you know, since you're already in it, here's the challenge you face, Fernando, in this one, um, is that you've, you've got a tenant that's used to getting a really good deal on the property, and you may not, even if if the new rent that you want to charge is, say, $1,250 per month, you, you may not be able to pull this tenant up there because their psychology is at a certain point where they're only paying, what, $1,075? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so that's their psychology, and, you know, that's just what they feel it's worth, right? And so they may go out on the market and not find anything else, but they'll just be possibly, you know, kind of angry with you for trying to raise them up to market rent. So you may have to get a new tenant, okay? But, you know, if you can succeed in doing it, you know, show the tenant the evidence and the reason. And sites like Rentometer and Rent Range, those are handy sites. But again, they're like Zillow, you know, they're really, they're using an algorithm and it's very imperfect, okay? So when you're looking at a site you know, that uses an algorithm to determine rent, it's never going to be accurate. It's better than nothing. It's a guideline, you know, it's helpful. But you really, what you need to do is you need to go and act like a tenant. Uh, There's an old saying, you know, walk in the other Indian's moccasins for a mile, right, before passing judgment, right? And, And so you need to go and just act like a tenant would and go to Craigslist, go to the other sites where properties are for rent, go to uh, Zillow Rentals, and look at what else is out there on the market and do exactly what they're probably going to do when you hit them with a rent increase is they're going to just shop a little bit and maybe they won't do it seriously, but they're at least going to look online. And so that's what you need to do to try and get a feel. Also, since you're you're self-managing this property, I think it's worth a couple of quick calls or emails to a property manager in the area, a couple of property managers, and ask them what it's worth for rent and just kind of evaluate all of this stuff and go from there. Okay. And you got one more question, and let's do that and get to our guest. By the way, our guest today is Dan Mitchell, Senior Fellow with the Cato Institute, and he'll be up in a moment. All right, second question. What would Jason do? So have a a renewal coming up. Uh, This is in Atlanta, Georgia. The tenant is currently paying $1,100 a month, and um, we proposed a two-year lease with an increase to $1,200 first year and going to $1,225 second year. Okay. As you can see, it's a $100 increase. We were a little bit... By the way, I like your two-year lease idea. Okay. You know, for someone who's definitely buying and holding the properties, I think the two-year lease is a good idea. So listeners, you can tell your property managers or, you know, your tenants, if you're self-managing properties, that you want to do two-year leases, but you're not doing two-year leases at one fixed price. You're doing what Fernando's doing, which is a good idea, is you're you're making it higher the second year. Now, of course, the downfall here is you could get trapped with a bad tenant, but you can always, you know, kick them out for violating a covenant of the lease. Or, uh, you know, the other risk you have is obviously inflation risk. 
but I'm just going to say it over the next two years, I don't think there's a lot of inflation risk. And you've got a small bump in there too. Okay. So what's the specific question though? Yeah. So, so just to finish on your thought, I like the two-year lease proposal because there are more knobs you can play with. If the tenant comes back with a counter proposal, you have more levers that you can, you can adjust. Good idea. Otherwise known as horse trading, right? And so you can, you can trade this for that and, and you got more points to negotiate. And it puts them in the, in the, in a frame of mind that there is, increase built into your lease expected to go up next year and I think there's there's some psychology that is involved with that and some tenants uh, like my mom's example you know and you can ask her about this one in the Memphis property tour listeners I know a lot of you are going to be there and uh, you know they, she's got that tenant that's been in her property since 1989 I mean that's just crazy the longest tenant I ever had in a property was nine years I kept raising the rent and the guy just would not move <laughs> it took him nine years yeah, yeah. Okay, so back to the question. So the proposal that we made is twelve hundred first year, twelve twenty five uh, second year, and the tenants came back and says, you know, we will accept these terms, but we would like our late fees to be waived. They are currently behind on uh, on their uh, on their payments for I think a couple months, and the the late fees are about $230, so they want the late fees to be waived. Now, one distinction. They're not actually behind on the rent. They're just behind on some late fees, right? Exactly. Sorry, yeah, I misspoke yeah. on that, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so they were late a few times, and their late fees totaled up to be $230 or so, and you haven't collected the late fees yet. You've collected the rent. Correct. Because if you said you hadn't collected the rent, there would be eviction. Yeah, <laughs> all right, okay. Sorry, yeah. Okay. Yeah, good point. So... So should uh, should the uh, late fees be waived for a two-year lease at the price that I wanted? Okay, so tenant says, look, we'll renew the lease for two years. And, you know, they're kind of these types of tenants that aren't super careful and on it. And they're kind of late now and then. So you've got to put up with that. But sometimes the late fees can be actually very profitable. And this is one of the reasons we like, you and I, Fernando, self-management so much because... The property manager is not keeping the late fees, okay? You're getting them as the owner, uh, as it should be, or at least it should just be on a split. And you know, I've talked on past episodes about the flat fee property management, where you pay a higher fee and they just get it on everything, but they don't get these funny little nickel and dimey things. Past episodes, we talked about that in January at Meet the Masters, etc. We won't go into it now. But what I would say here is, look, you know, never in a negotiation, never just give the other side everything, okay? Just use it as a, like you said, more knobs you can play with, more levers, more horse trading, right? And so just trade with them. And, and, you know, if you want to make a concession, get the two-year lease done, rather than saying I'll waive all the late fees, I think you should ask things as a question, okay, and see what they say. And say, look, how about if we split the difference? You just send them an email, that's all it says. How about if we split the difference and you pay half the late fees? And, you know, you got a two-year lease, you got a tenant who's who's late now and then, which means you're going to be collecting some more late fees in the future probably. This is the reason they're not a homeowner. So this is actually can benefit you as a landlord and really increase your ROI quite a bit on the late fees. I also put some weight on the quality of the tenant that I'm dealing with. If, it, if, it, if the tenant uh, is someone that hasn't given me a lot of headaches in the past, right. then I'm more lenient and, and try to work with them. I want to keep them, not have a turnover. If the tenant is troubled, then, you know, I think the the, the, the 
negotiation negotiation changes, you have to take that into account. So. Right. So if they're a difficult tenant, you know, you can be firmer on the negotiation in the thought that maybe they'll just move anyway, you know, and I won't have to ask them to move. So uh, there you go. Okay, good. Well, Fernando, uh, those are great questions. I hope those helped our listeners. Let's get to our guest, Dan Mitchell, Senior Fellow with the Cato Institute. Thank you so much for joining me today. And here's Dan Mitchell. It's my pleasure to welcome Dan Mitchell to the show. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and focusing a lot on government spending, fiscal policy, and tax plans for the various candidates in the elections. Dan, welcome. How are you? I am doing just fine. Glad to be with you. Good to have you. You've written a lot about Marco Rubio and Mike Lee and and their proposed tax plan. What are your thoughts? On the business side, in terms of the treatment of income that is saved and invested, uh, it's a very, very, very good plan. It would basically get rid of almost all the double taxation in the current tax system. It would make uh, America a lot more internationally competitive in terms of uh, both corporate income and in terms of investment. It doesn't do a whole lot to bring down individual tax rates on the theory that it's more politically saleable if you increase child tax credits, uh, but I give it a, a solid uh, B, if not an A minus, because of what it does uh, for business and corporate taxation. The people on the left love to talk about corporate welfare as if corporations aren't really pass-through entities, in my opinion. When companies are taxed more, when the regulatory burden increases, doesn't that just pass through to the consumer? Ultimately, all taxes on business are paid by individuals, whether in the form of lower returns for shareholders, lower wages for workers, higher prices for consumers. Uh, Businesses simply collect taxes, but people are the ones who pay taxes. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as corporate welfare. Policies like the Export-Import Bank uh, at the Cato Institute were very critical of those policies because that's where government is putting its thumb on the scale and giving undeserved handouts and wealth to, to the business sector. But we definitely don't believe that the government should be penalizing the corporate sector with high taxes. Let companies compete. If they earn profits fairly for their shareholders, uh, that's a good thing for our economy, and we should try to keep tax rates low on all productive activity. What do you say about all of this money that the multinationals have overseas? And, you know, some talk about how if the government were to have an amnesty or a reduction in corporate tax, a lot of that money would repatriate, and it would be better for the economy overall. The first thing to understand is the reason that companies are keeping more than $2 trillion uh, overseas is simple. We have almost unique in the world a perverse system of worldwide taxation, which means that American companies, when they earn tax in other countries, which is a good thing, we want our companies to to compete successfully around the world and earn market share. So when our American domiciled companies earn money overseas, they, of course, pay tax wherever that income is earned. They earn money in Germany, they pay tax to the German tax authority, they earn money in China, they pay tax to China, so on and so forth. Well, under the IRS rules, they also have to, if they bring that money back to America, put it on their American tax returns as if it's American source income and pay another layer of tax on it. And of course, because our corporate tax is the highest in the world, This is a huge competitive hindrance for American companies, and it gives them a giant incentive to keep their money outside of the United States. So some people have proposed, well, why don't we have a repatriation holiday so this money comes back to America, which, of course, is certainly better than the status quo, but ultimately, 
the answer is we need to reform the tax system, bring the corporate tax rate down uh, dramatically, you know, certainly no higher than 25%, but ideally 15 or 20%, and then, like the rest of the world, move to a system of territorial taxation, which is the common sense notion that you only tax income earned inside your borders, and if a company earns income inside another country's borders, they tax it. Well, this is true of individuals, too. I mean, the, the IRS is the only taxing entity in the world, from what I understand, that taxes all worldwide income on individuals. So, you know, there, there, there's a very small movement, and, and it is admittedly small, but it's interesting when these people relinquish their citizenship, it's almost like they're having an incentive to do so. If you're living overseas, why should you be paying American taxes if you're not using American services? Now, granted, maybe if you got into trouble, you could go to one of our embassies. Maybe, you know, the government would rescue you or something like that. But, you know, I mean, it's a lot less than using uh, various other, the huge list of services here locally at home. Our worldwide taxation system does apply to individuals as well. And it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare because of policies like FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which is leading to Americans overseas being denied financial services because no foreign financial firm wants to have a nexus with the IRS, and yet the IRS, in effect, wants them to become deputy tax collectors. It's fundamentally bad tax policy because, as you pointed out, we're the only civilized country in the world that has this policy of worldwide taxation uh, for our, our citizens who live and work abroad. Here's the bottom line. If an American citizen is living and working in France, they're already paying French taxes. If an American citizen is living and working in Thailand, they're already paying Thai taxes. You know, why we have this perverse additional layer of tax is an anachronism that is very contrary to American competitiveness. Well, analyze the corporate tax side. Let's go back to that for a moment, if you, if you would. And so this $2 trillion is being kept offshore and... What would happen if we had a repatriation holiday or just a lower uh, tax rate? I mean, the, the money would flow back, and then what would happen? I mean, just kind of analyze that whole thing for the listeners, if you would. We actually don't even need to theorize about it because we have a real-world example from last decade. In 2004, there was a repatriation holiday. There was, of course, a smaller amount of money at stake back then, but companies brought back, I think it was something like $362 billion dollars, uh, because they only had to pay a 5.25% tax instead of this uh, heavy double tax of 35%. So it was a huge success. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the economic benefits because, as I'm sure you understand, global capital uh, will always seek out the, the best after-tax rate of return. And so if, if hundreds of billions of dollars, I guess nowadays it'd be over a trillion dollars of capital comes back to the United and to the United States because of a repatriation holiday, there's no doubt that some capital that's currently invested in America would instead be invested someplace else because you know, the after-tax rates of return are going to equalize. But clearly, it's going to be a benefit for the American economy. Clearly, it will be very advantageous for American companies to utilize their cash holdings more efficiently. It's bound to be a win-win for the American economy. Heck, it'll even, just like in 2004, it'll probably give the politicians more money. It'll be a net win for them even. So there's, it makes no sense for us to cling to this very anti-competitive system that unambiguously is not only bad for our companies, but of course for workers and consumers consumers as well, derivatively, and even a net revenue loser 
for the IRS. Yep, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> That's the interesting thing, you know, when you when you ease up on the taxes and the regulation, you just spur more economic activity and it's it's just better for everybody. You know, way is is it that the left doesn't see that or do they just love the sound bites about, you know, this uh, fake sort of class envy warfare of the corporations versus the people or what do you think is going on in, in on that side of the aisle and in, in what they say i think class warfare drives a lot of it uh ideologically there are some folks on the left who just have disdain and hostility uh for the market economy uh and so if a company is making money or if an entrepreneur or investor is uh is becoming quote unquote rich they just assume that somehow that's bad i think they have this mentality that the economy is a fixed pie so if someone like bill gates is getting a big slice of pie they think that means the rest of us are getting smaller slices of pie now that's obviously not true and the data is overwhelming, showing that in the long run, the economy grows and the pie gets bigger and everyone can be better off. I mean, think about how much better off our generation is than, say, our grandparents in terms of our living standards, our income, uh, just the, the various benefits uh, and quality of life that we enjoy. But I think this fixed pie mentality somehow is hardwired into the minds of, uh, of people who support statism. Now, that's one component. The other component... I think, frankly, is just political. Some of these people probably understand, yeah, it's good to have a growing economy. Yes, it's better to have low taxes than high taxes, but they see short-term political advantage from dividing the country, fomenting class warfare, and making it seem like it's the big guys versus the little guys. Yes, they certainly do. Uh, what, what do you think the other side can come back with to win over the hearts and minds of the electorate? Boy, if I knew the, uh, the answers to questions like that, I would know how to promote freedom better, and I would know how to fight statism better. But I think it is critical, tying into our, tying into our last question, we have to somehow figure out ways of explaining to people that a rising tide, as JFK said, will lift all boats and that in a competitive global economy, especially if you look at what's happened to Europe with the collapse of the welfare state, we need to be able to convince people that growing tax burdens and growing dependency on government are like a cancer that can eat away at the, at the vitality and prosperity of a society. It's just that everybody wants their little piece of the pie. You know, they, they don't really view you, they don't worry about the bigger picture, you know, whether the welfare state will collapse. That's just too big for at least most people, at least on the left, to think about. You know, they, they, want, their, they want their goodies. I think you're right uh, in many cases, but, but I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic here. At least when I, what I've seen over the last several years, when I'm giving speeches around the country, when I'm doing especially call-in radio shows and getting feedback from people, and even when I'm up on Capitol Hill talking to politicians and their staff, I think people have, to some degree, incorporated in their thinking, look what's happened in Europe, look at how countries like Greece and Italy and Spain and France are beginning to collapse. We can't do that. And people understand that our, our population is aging, the demographics are pointing against us, and that, that makes it all the more important that we begin to reform government spending, we begin to lower tax rates, and try to make the country more competitive. Yeah, no question about it. Dan, you mentioned Europe and Spain and Greece and Portugal, and, you know, there, there are so many issues and challenges there. What are your thoughts? I mean, uh, you know, look at Greece, gosh, it, it, will Greece ever get back on track or is that country 
just pretty much uh, slated for a revolution. I'm very worried about the long-run outlook in Greece, not because mathematically it's impossible for them to, to right the ship. Uh, any country at any point in time can make fiscal progress so long as they follow my golden rule, which is simply to have the government grow slower than the private sector. However, what are the odds that that can be achieved when for decades the Greek people, and this of course is a problem all throughout Europe, when people have been told that it's government's job to take care of them. And sooner or later, as more and more people climb into the wagon of government dependency, and there are fewer and fewer taxpayers who can pull the wagon, the entire system grinds to a halt. And yet all these people sitting in the wagon, they don't have any concept that it's been sort of taught out of them by the political class that you have to produce if you want to consume. And so will the Greek people ever vote for a Margaret Thatcher or a Ronald Reagan? Will they ever take the steps necessary to put their country back on a good track? So, so I don't think that there's a mathematical problem in fixing the problem in Europe. I think there's a political culture problem, a dependency mindset problem that makes it a very, very uphill battle. Yeah, no question about it. So let's compare and contrast that to the U.S. then. I mean, do, do we have a mathematical problem? It sure seems so when you look at the unfunded entitlements coming out us over the next 15 years or so. I don't know that there's enough tax revenue to get, even if we tax the rich at 100%. You know, <laughs> there's just, you know what, are, what are we going to do? Are we just destined for massive inflation due to this debt? Or, um, you know, will technology, I think technology could kind of save us. But what are your thoughts on the future for the U.S.? If you look at the forecasts, whether from the Government Accountability Office, the Congressional Budget Office, anybody who's crunching the numbers on the U.S., we are basically going to become Greece if we don't change government policy. Now, the good news is we have a little bit of time, and I underscore a little bit of time. Uh, we're 10 or 15 years behind some of these European countries in terms of the, uh, uh, the long march toward dependency. However, if another four years goes by, another eight years goes by, and we don't make these changes, and we begin to get into the peak years of the baby boom generation's retirement. I worry at some point, just like in Europe, there's a tipping point where there's just so much government dependency, and the political culture changes enough, and, and people no longer understand that you have to produce before you can consume. We could wind up in the same situation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't think that'll happen because I do think, as we talked about before, that a lot of people, even some of the politicians in Washington, understand that things have to change. Uh, but it's certainly not a gimme that we're going to solve the problem. So, so there is an educational mission uh, for people like you and me. Uh, there is an awakening that's needed on the part of the American people. And we do need at least some responsible politicians who are willing to tell the truth and to do the right thing. Yeah, no question about it. With this level of debt, though, I, I'm really surprised we haven't seen more inflation. What are your thoughts on that? That's a mystery. Uh, we've had so much uh, easing and so much liquidity pumped into the system. Now, part of it, of course, has been sterilized by the banking system. They're keeping all these excess reserves at the Fed. Part of all this liquidity, I think, has, uh, has been steered into financial markets, and it's quite possible we have a bit of a bubble uh, that might come back to bite us in the rear end uh, uh, if it pops. Uh, so I, I don't know. If, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be investing money and I'd be becoming, I'd be becoming rich. Uh, but but he, here's, here's, I guess, one optimistic answer to part of your question. Yes, we have a lot of debt right now. 
But our debt as a share of GDP is still well below where it was at the end of World War II. And if we can simply follow my golden rule of having government grow slower than the private sector, that means in relatively short period of time, we could balance our budget and our debt will begin to fall as a share of GDP again. Uh, it's really all about the trend lines. Are you growing 2%, 3%, or 4%? That has enormous implications for long-run living standards. Is government growing 2% and the private sector growing 4% or is it the other way around? If it's the other way around, we become Greece. So I think we need to keep our eye on the ball. And the eye on the ball means we have to focus on the long-run capping of the growth of government spending to restrain the burden of governments so it grows slower than the private sector. If we do that, a lot of problems will be solved. But if we follow the path of Greece and France and let government grow faster than the private economy, well, frankly, no, no amount of taxes will save you. It'll be like a dog chasing its tail and we'll eventually wind up with fiscal collapse. Yeah, we, cert we certainly will. So w tell us about how that trend line has been. And I like your golden rule a lot, by the way. You know, the private sector needs to go faster than the government sector. And obviously that hasn't happened lately, at least in the past, uh, you know, several years. What's that trend line been like over the past uh, few decades? In, over the long run, ever since World War II, the government has been growing a little bit faster than the private sector, and that's why the burden of government spending as a share of GDP is higher today than it was after World War II. Uh, however, inside all those decades, there are some fascinating stories. We made a little bit of progress during the Reagan years, after, of course, moving in the wrong direction under Nixon and, and Jimmy Carter. Uh, then under the first President Bush, government grew, but then it actually shrank not not in nominal terms, but as a share of GDP, it shrank under Bill Clinton. Uh, and then it grew a lot under Bush and during the early Obama years. But ever since the Tea Party election uh, in 2010, uh, Government hasn't grown nearly as fast. All these battles over debt limits and sequesters and government shutdowns, they've actually paid off in, in the sense that government spending ha has grown at a much slower rate. Now, is this just a temporary low? Is this sort of like a false victory? Is government now going to begin exploding in size again? Uh, you know, frankly, a lot will be told by what happens in the 2016 elections. Yeah, it sure will. It sure will. Well, good. Give out your website, if you would. Tell people where they can learn more about your work. Well, the Cato website is just cato.org, and you can see all the work of all our scholars. I have a blog, and the simplest way to get to it is just go to some search engine and type in Dan Mitchell blog. It's called International Liberty, uh, where I write primarily on fiscal policy issues, but I also cover a lot of other economic and philosophical issues relating to the relationship between individuals and the state. Excellent. Dan, any closing thoughts? I guess the message is very simple. If we think that we can live off the government, we're repeating the mistake that Bastiat warned about more than 150 years ago, which is that the great fiction of government is that everybody can live at the expense of everybody else. We have to be responsible for ourselves. We can't view government as a sugar daddy. Very well put. Very well put. Dan Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What's great about the shows you'll find on jasonhartman.com is that if you want to learn how to finance your next big real estate deal, there's a show for that. If you want to learn more about food storage and the best way to keep those onions from smelling up everything else, there's a show for that. If you honestly want to know more about business ethics, there's a show for that. 
And if you just want to get away from it all and need to know something about world travel, there's even a show for that. Yep, there's a show for just about anything. Only from JasonHartman.com or type in Jason Hartman in the iTunes store. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.